Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to episode 83 of Strangers in the Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here with co-host Pete Wall and producer Jack Mills. Gentlemen, as I always describe you as, uh, how are we? Not bad, fellow gentlemen. Um, yeah, really good to be back. And a thing that you haven't said so far that I think is important to say is you can probably hear our sultry tones in finer quality than ever because the strangest team has invested some hard-earned cash in some new tech. So if this episode sounds better, that's what you have to thank, apart from the... Yes, and know, please also let us know if it does sound better. Yeah. We think it will, so we've now got... As opposed to using, we'll bore you a little bit with technical details, as opposed to using one microphone for the three of us, uh, we've now got three separate microphones, essentially. We're like um, real so grown-up. Yeah. Well, so yeah, let me know if I've done my job properly and got all the levels correct. Yeah, if anything sounds like shit on this episode, it is entirely Jack Mills' fault. It is, yeah. If anything sounds good, that would be me and Paul. Obviously, we ran the mics by him before we ordered them, or did we? (laughs) No, we just got carried away about pretty pictures and just went ahead and bought some some mics. Didn't read any information upon them. No, so we hope they're good. They're they're more expensive than the other ones, so they should be fine. So yeah, so slight change there. Um... Yeah, also, I think while we're at it, while we're in the foyer, I'm going to be off for the next couple of weeks because I'm moving to Bath. Oh, collective sigh of relief across the nation. Uh, But we will have (laughs) the the ever-dependable and very entertaining Claire Clark back on, which will be good. Um, So she will be on definitely next week, possibly the week after, depending on how quickly Virgin can sort my internet out. So uh, that should be interesting. Um, Anything from anyone else before we get into the show itself? No, yeah, looking forward to that. Claire, as as listeners will know, has been on before. She's been really good. And, you know, maybe other people will be filling in in the near future too, if, if needs be. But for now, we've got all the regular parts of the show that you know and possibly at this point have come to resentfully sort of like. Um, the first part, of course, as Paul has already mentioned, is in the foyer. This is the beginning of our virtual trip through the cinema in which we discuss something from the world of films connected to the world of films that we've been thinking about of late. Paul, you came up with an idea here that tied into one of today's features. What is that? Uh, well, the idea, Jack actually came up with the idea. Yeah, I came up with it. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) In my credit section at the end of the show, I'm going to give credit to Jack for coming up with a really good (laughs) idea. seems fair, yeah, that does seem reasonable. Uh, no, well, we are reviewing Ready Player One today as one of our feature reviews. Um, so Jack came up with the idea of favourite Steven Spielberg films, which I think is a fairly good topic to bring up on the subject of that. Um, Jack, it was your idea. Do you want to go first? Yes. Uh, Okay, so I'm going to pick War Horse, which was a 2012 release. I had 72% Metacritic, which is pretty good, which means probably half of the nation liked it with me. I'd also like to point out that I love Jurassic Park as well, and Paul's going to talk about that. You're possibly the only person, I think, that would pick, of all the films Spielberg's done, you've picked War Horse. I'm I feel impressed. as if this I'm is impressed. trolling. I hope this well, is... no, because I I thoroughly enjoyed the. Is this genuine? The, yeah, it is. If it is, I would respect your decision. I thoroughly enjoyed the the theatre production of War Horse as well. Okay, and then to see it on the big screen was was pretty impressive as well. Um, I like I love the book as well. So Joey, Joey, it's my Joey. Yes. that's what I remember of that movie. <laughs> yeah. I've not actually seen War Horse. So oh, okay, oh, yeah. dude, save yourself two and a half hours. Or not. Okay. 
All right, Warhorse wasn't the best pick. Okay, although, I get it. All although right. that bit with Toby Kevill and the barbed wire, that's quite good, isn't it? It is, no yeah. Man, no Man's Land. Well, no, if you like it. Uh, I like, Just, you know, I like the films. Pick, so, like, yeah, okay. It's and it's, and it's, a very, it's a very sort of well, as you'd expect from a Spielberg production, but it's like it's a very well-crafted movie. And oh, unlike you, I haven't seen the theatre production, so I didn't come in with that. I think it was just, uh, maybe it was the time I saw it, but I found it to be, um, yeah, sporadically uh, engaging. And then uh, other parts maybe just went on a little bit, a little bit long. But yeah, I didn't, like I said, I didn't come in with the theatre uh, show as a background. I'm backpedalling here because I feel like I've hurt Jack's feelings. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Paul, very hurt. What's your, uh, what's your Spielberg pick? Uh, the Post. <laughs> so you've gone War Horse in the post. And I'm this is the go worst Spielberg film. You're going to drop the term and Yeah, or, or what would what would Conor Gagan? He he would tell us like some really early Spielberg. Oh, he likes the, the Sugarland Express a lot. Sugarland Express. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Our top three uh, finished. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, mine is it's it's kind of close, but I think uh, just over ET. I think Jurassic Park pips it. Uh, Jurassic Park is one of the rare films that for me really doesn't do anything wrong, uh, and is timeless to the point where I feel that all the sequels. Uh, entirely unnecessary so yeah there's not, there's not much more I can say about Jurassic Park apart from the fact there is an incredible range has anyone seen these things you would have seen these things because they're a massive pop culture thing Funko Pops okay yeah, yeah, yeah Funko yeah. Pops yeah, this, yeah. this is me being 36 and just going oh what are these <laughs> um, <laughs> they've released a range of Jurassic Park Funko Pops oh uh, amazing and I have managed to order because I'm this way when I find when I set my heart on something there's a Target exclusive Funko Pop which is injured Ian Malcolm where like the bit in Jurassic Park where Ian Malcolm sat there injured with his shirt undone, like the iconic Jeff Goldblum shot. There's an injured Ian Malcolm Funko Pop. But he's actually in that position as well, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that will be my first Funko Pop. And also, here and now, you're going to hear it. I said, I looked at my wife yesterday, I was like, I'm going to collect Funko Pops. And she was like, oh shit, here we go. If I collect something, that's, that's it. And she was like, no. And I said, no, a specific kind of Funko Pop. So here and now, you read it here first, I'm going to collect Jeff Goldblum Funko Pops. And you're actually, you're yep. also going to be lucky enough to see Jurassic Park with a live orchestra as well, aren't you? I am going to see Jurassic yeah, Park with a live orchestra. Yeah, which is pretty awesome. November, actually, which would be awesome. Nice. But more importantly, Jeff Goldblum Funko yeah. Pops, that's what I'm <laughs> yeah. saying. For uh, people who don't know, like, Funko Pops are like little sort of cute looking models yeah. with big heads. There's, there's, yeah. there's hundreds of them, if not thousands of them out there. Because they've done like Twin film. Peaks ones as well. I was, I was quite yeah, there's some, they've, interested They've done in some quite, um, quite obscure... I want to get the twins from The Shining. They look pretty cool. Oh, is that? Oh, yeah. no, no. I'm only allowed to buy Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> right. Yeah, and more, more on the twins from The Shining maybe later on in one of the yeah. future reviews, right? Uh, yeah, for me, there was only one choice when I go to Spielberg, uh, not because anything else is of sort of a lower quality, but because it's the one that really like cemented Spielberg in my mind as, as a guy that I was interested in when I was growing up. And that is, of course, Jaws. I say, of course, as if that's the only choice that you could make. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah Jaws, uh, Jaws is just a film that grabbed me when I was, I don't know, 14 years old, 13, 14 years old. And, and it's kind of stuck in my head for the entirety of my life up to the, the present day. Um, there's so much to recommend the film, not just the the f- most famous scenes of like the John Williams score and the attacks from below and that like the way in which everybody who saw this film when they were a kid or a teenager n- didn't want to go in the ocean again. Even now when I'm in the ocean, I get the feeling that some kind of great white is probably just underneath me and about to attack. But also like the fact that Jaws is basically a film that is about... Uh, male friendship and bonding and the stuff that they do on the boat when they go out to catch the shark is as much about character as it is about like some creature feature situation so um yeah it's got black si- black eyes like a doll's eyes um yeah jaws jaws is massively massively uh highly regarded by myself is there a quint funko pop because if there is you should get that there that, must would be, be, that would be wicked 
There must Quick be. Funko Pop yeah, cool. yeah. I, I would like that. I would take a little like a uh, Great White Shark Funko Pop as well. Yeah, that would like go alongside. If you know there's George Funko Pops out there, guys, let us know. We could just Google it, but it's more fun if you let us know. Yeah, I feel like our show is collapsing into like the <laughs> nerdiest thing in the world, but that's cool. Uh, we got new microphones. We got nerdy references to Funko Pops. What, what more do you want? <laughs> yeah. uh, we will be back in just a moment to get into the regular second section of the show that we like to call Popcorn Movies. So we are back with popcorn movies. Uh, I'm going to blitz in with one that I've had on my list for a while, if that's all right, guys. My first popcorn movie of the week. Um, this is a film called Season of the Witch, which I can't even remember which year it was released because it's entirely forgettable, but I picked it up on Netflix. Um, season of the Witch year was it re- released? Yeah, Season of the Witch year it was released, yes. I like that, Pete. I like that a lot. Um, do, do you actually like this film? Because to me, this looked like absolute dreck. Is that, is that's not the uh, Nicolas Cage one. Is it? It, it is the Nicolas Cage one. Oh, it is the Nicolas Cage one. So basically, so we've got, it's directed by Dominic Senna, who I think did the Need for Speed film. I may be wrong. So again, I, I haven't checked, to be honest, because the film doesn't mean that much to me. Uh, I picked it up on Netflix with a hangover and thinking this could be okay. Uh, it's not okay. It's absolutely terrible. But it's. I'm going to introduce you, uh, uh, podcast listeners, to something I don't think I've brought up before. This. So the cast list in this, we've got Nicolas Cage here, we've got Ron Perman, we've got Christopher Lee, we've got a very early performance from Claire Foy, we've got um, the guy, who's the British guy that was... Um, Combo in Stephen Graham. Stephen Graham's in this. So a lot of very talented actors, maybe if you exclude Nick Cage from this. There's a, there's a lot of big names in this. Christopher Lee's in this. The, uh, the legendary Christopher Lee. Not another one, the actual Christopher Lee. So this film, to me, listeners at home, my theory is this. This is a patio film. So when actors decide they need a new patio, they just take on a heap of shit like this. Because <laughs> it is dreadful. And like, but isn't well, that Nicolas Cage all the time, though? But Christopher Lee, though. Surely Christopher yeah. Lee didn't need the money for this. Wasn't, I mean, that, wasn't that tying into the last section? Was it Michael Caine who was in, like, Jaws 3 or something like that? Yes. Yeah, and, and specifically said, this bought me, like, a holiday home yeah. or a oh, patio yeah, yeah. or, or yeah, something exactly, like that. Yeah. Like, so some yeah. of the actors actually admit it. But Christopher Lee, I don't think, could need the money. Um, it's just that the film itself is a by-the-number, very by-the-number sort of sub-Lord of the Rings fantasy yarn that just isn't very good. Um, it's amusing in places because of just how bored Nicolas Cage's dialogue delivery is. Uh, it, it's almost it, almost so boring it's entertaining. Do you, do you think, Paul, that you're going through a little bit of a Cage stage? Because last week we had oh, Mum and Dad, Mom and Dad yeah. from you, and this, this week we've got Season of the Witch. Do you think you're, you're pulling back into the sort of gravitational... Uh, a pull of, of one Nicholas um, Cage because you know from here you could go all kinds of places with your future popcorn reviews if, if we're on a bit of a kick I could I'll be honest Pete uh, I've been in Bath for the last week and struggled I haven't really watched much so I had to look back through and I was like Season of the Witch mm. popcorn film yeah. so I don't know maybe I'm going for a Cage stage and I didn't even know it that's the thing <laughs> maybe that is maybe it's a subconscious Cage stage these happen to the best Let's of us. Let's get out of this. Let's get out of this. Pete, what have you got? So, first popcorn movie for this week, um, I guess I will go with Unsane. Now, Unsane is the new one uh, on general release at the moment from one retired film director um, called Steven Soderbergh. He doesn't make films anymore because he... Ret- <laughs> oh, hold on, hold on. Yeah, that didn't last very long. Uh, he's been back. We reviewed Logan Lucky not that long ago. What, this year? This year? 
Was it this year? No, it wasn't this year. Late last year. Late last year. Okay, hugely struck on, if I remember rightly. Yeah, it it was okay. It was like a a heist movie that was, you know, you kind of shrugged a little bit at the end of it. It had some cool dialogue and stuff. But this one uh, stars Claire Foy that Paul has just recently mentioned in reference to Season of the Witch, which is a funny coincidence. And she is um, fresh off getting mega famous on The Crown. Is that what she's on, isn't it? I don't watch it, but yeah, I I hear it. With Matt Smith. Right. Um, But in this one, she plays a woman who has moved uh, apparently four and a half hours away from her hometown in order to take a fairly um, well-paid, stable, solid uh, office job. And she gets into difficulty when she um, basically goes on a date with a guy, reacts to his sexual advances in a very um, seemingly uh, inflated sort of over-the-top way, and then looks for help from... uh, psychologist uh, or sort of mental health provider of sorts and against her will it would seem is uh, institutionalized now the thing that has grabbed attention about this film apart from the fact that steven spielberg is steven spielberg steven soderbergh steven spielberg isn't involved that was one thing that grabbed attention steven soderbergh is going back to the well of dealing with uh, like big pharma and mental illness the other thing is that this film is entirely shot on iphones which is a thing i think early on in the film which to me sort of grabbed my attention it was quite interesting it allows basically the filmmaker to put his camera in positions where regular size film cameras just wouldn't fit which allows you to have sort of wider angles on interior shots and that sort of thing so for filming interiors I think it's quite an interesting technique and it adds something fairly naturalistic and uh, you know claustrophobic at times to to the mise-en-scene but uh, once we get into the actual uh, meat and potatoes of this thing I don't know if you. I wish you guys had both seen this. To be honest, I don't know where Thursday, so I haven't. I don't know where you guys are going to come down, but to me, I I took against it about the halfway mark because I felt that side effects, the previous outing of Steven Soderbergh's, where he deals with big pharma and and mental illness, was uh, playing very fast and loose with things that affect like real people's lives, and the the fact that we. I don't know, you've both seen that film. Have you both seen Side effects. Yeah. yeah. So the, the fact that the audience is, is implicit in sort of buying into the idea that someone on SSRI drugs uh, randomly stabs their partner to death is something that if you turn the film off at halfway, you would just take for granted as a fact about that industry and about that kind of drug, right? And then we discussed this when I was talking about the Texas Chainsaw film, yeah. the recent Texas Chainsaw film, like the representation of mental illness is yeah. just horrible. Does this... Well, well, no, it doesn't at all. It doesn't at all. I mean, this one instead it becomes this sort of conspiracy theory movie about the fact that um, institutions institutionalise people who don't deserve to be there in order to fiddle essentially um, health benefits and uh, like American health insurance. The performance from Claire Foy is, is very good, actually. Um, Jay Farrow's in this, the American stunt comedian. He's good, too. Um, there's a, a, a ludicrous cameo that I don't want to give away, but like really jarring in this movie. Um, yeah, it's not in any of the trailers, I don't believe. So, so find out for yourself if you get to see this thing. But like Steven Spielberg sort of slumming Sorry, it but... as I've done it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's because we did that feature first of all. I've just got and the next two S's. It's well, two S's, dude. It's rest. too much. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, Soderbergh sort of in this genre world of, of cranking out stuff at a pace is fine. I think he's a very talented filmmaker, but I just think what he chooses 
in terms of content to bring to screen could be... Is it just silly then? Is this the problem? It becomes ludicrously right, okay. silly by the end. That's what I thought in the trailer. I thought this looks like it's just going to get ridiculous. It, it, but it's again, it's the same deal with, with side effects where I was really going along with the movie until a point at where, which it goes sort of left field mm. in a way that is, is super like daft. And also I think relatively disrespectful to like real world issues, you know? Um, so I guess those are my, my main sketch problems. And Steven uh, Soderbergh admits himself that he's never taken anything really stronger than an aspirin or maybe a beta blocker. So I don't know if he's the guy to base his psychological thrillers around things like, you know, real world mental health well, issues that affect question, millions of people. You, here's a question for you, because I saw the headline of an article on the Guardian film uh, website, which I haven't read yet because I haven't seen the film. Uh, and they said, uh, unsane shows that representation of mental health on the screen is improving. Would you disagree with that? I, to- that I totally disagree okay. with that. I totally I'm disagree. Now. I'm, because I'm because I just feel, you know, to, to round off, I just feel like what it is is that Soderbergh feels that this is a uh, a sort of salacious and fun jumping off point for um for for scares and and some you know twisty sort of horror conventions to be thrown on screen and I and I. I just, I just don't feel comfortable with that. And maybe call me a SJW or whatever you want, <laughs> but like, I, I don't feel comfortable with it. And I wish that he would, yeah, like even the Logan Lucky that I've mentioned, you know, that raised some, um, some concerns. Uh, concerns maybe is the wrong word, but raised some issues with folks who said that his depiction of Southern American people yeah. was was uh, maybe not as well considered as it might have been. But yeah, this one, I just by the end, I was kind of angry. To be honest, so yeah, other opinions exist, and check it out for yourself. And I'm sure you guys will, and then we'll see what you think of Unsane. Paul, what's second for you? Pacific Rim Uprising. Oh man, yes, yes, Pacific <laughs> Rim Uprising. It might give away what I thought of it, but yeah. I hope that uh, so yes, uh, regular listeners of the show will know that I fucking love the first Pacific Rim, and I don't care what other people say about it. It's a guilty pleasure, if you will use that term. Um, and I have said on Coming Attractions, I didn't think the trailer for this looked any good. Um, we've got Stephen S. DeKnight uh, on his directorial debut. He's done quite a lot of television work, I believe, on Spartacus and certainly, I think, worked on Daredevil as well, the Netflix show, which I'm a big fan of. Um, so we've got, so basically it picks up 10 years after the original film. The war with the kaiju is over. Uh, you've got uh, Idris Elba's character, Stacker Pentecost, still one of the best characters in Germany. <laughs> this is such a, good name, name, such a good name. Such a good name. I didn't love the first film, but what a name. Because so he's called Stacker Pentecost. Um, so yeah, you've got his son, I think it's Jake Pentecost. So they've, they've kind of, they've kind of not, not done as well in the name. Played by John Boyega, but he's different. He's kind of an outsider. He's having, he's having a bit of a drink up and he likes the party and this kind of thing. He's a bit different. And initially, when the film kind of rolled up, I did have my concerns. I was like, oh, they've taken it back. And the look of the trailer was like, they're going to have loads of like awkward teenage characters. It's going to be like the junior novelization. But do you know what? God damn, did they deliver with this. Like, I had so much fun in the cinema. Like, I, I, almost, I think I might have enjoyed this almost as much as I enjoyed the first film. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't take itself too seriously. The special effects are superb. John Boyega is part of, a big part of the reason this film works. Like, it could have been straight to DVD shite, like, it really could have been, but John Boyega carries this film remarkably well with his charisma, like, he's, he's very, very good in it. He's a proper nerd as well, John Boyega. Like, if mm. you see him in interviews and talking about, like, nerd culture stuff, like, the guy is legit in terms of, like, 
you know, his credentials yeah. of, of being in sort of nerdier stuff or genre stuff or sci-fi stuff. Yeah, so I mean, he yeah he he helps a lot, but the special effects are incredible. The set pieces are fantastic. Um, all outside, all outside in daylight this time as well, um, nice. which is great because a lot I think a few people and I kind of accept these criticisms of the first film, although I do hold it quite fondly to my heart. Um, is that a lot of the scenes were at night? It was quite difficult to tell what was going on. I was like, I'll, I'll take that on the chin. So the filmmakers here have taken on the chin. Every set piece is in the day. Um, you can see every everything that goes on. Fuck you, Transformers. Um, you can see everything that happens, um, and it's great. And also, I have to say, and going what I wanted to round off by saying is, these films now for me are the films that the Transformers films should have been. So imagine Transformers without the mean spirited humour, without the female objectification, without borderline racism, and without annoying characters. Embrace your inner twelve-year-old and see Pacific Rim Uprising. Pete. Wow. Strong out there, man. Yeah. Well, for me, second this week is the one uh, or one film that I previewed last week as a coming attraction, and that is Game Over Man from director, well, I I guess feature debut director Carl Newacek. Carl Newacek, you will know as the uh, one of the driving forces behind Workaholics, along with the three stars of both that program and this movie, which are uh, Anders Holm, Blake Anderson, and Adam Devine. If you haven't seen the show, I would imagine this film makes even more, uh, even less sense, I should say, to you than it does to me as a sort of it reasonable level It strikes me as well, Carl, the movie I think we touched on last week. Is it, it? It, it really kind of is, man. Uh, yeah, it, first of all, this isn't, this isn't a great movie um, by any stretch. It is uh, a, a straight-to-Netflix title. Uh, not that there's any shame in that. These days we get all kinds of stuff going straight to streaming, but... It basically puts those three characters that you may know and also may love from Workaholics in a different environment. This time they're working as cleaners. Um, they've kind of switched the characters around a little bit from Workaholics. So, uh, for example, the Anders uh, Holm character who plays Durs on the show, Durs is always like the smart one, or at least he thinks he is on Workaholics. <laughs> Whereas in this show, he uh, is doing, uh, what's that shit, that like le- legal high that people like trip off of? Um, I've forgotten the name of that. Spice, name. I don't know. It's something like that, but it isn't Spice. Yeah. Uh, so he he's kind of like this this adult, it's uh, kind of druggy member of their group uh, who gets high on the job when they're cleaning hotel rooms. Uh, then we've got the Blake Anderson character who is now a little bit more sensible, whereas he's kind of the idiot on the show, uh, alongside Adam Devine, who basically plays Adam Devine in every single thing <laughs> he's in. Not knocking him. I don't think he's got range to play anyone other than Divine. He's, I think he's, he's quite good at playing himself. I think he's a really <laughs> yeah. charismatic dude having yeah. a great fucking life. But yeah. I don't... Yeah, I think I'm with you on that. Yeah, um, yeah what we get is basically uh, a, a, a crime caper that takes place in a high-rise building, high-rise hotel, and the guys, the gang, have to try to foil um, a, a criminal group. In the process, they get to like shoot guns and run around and, and get into all kinds of scrapes. Rona Mitra's in this, which was a kind of a bit of a crazy uh, uh, sight, considering that the last Lara thing... Croft. Well, well, Lara yes, Croft. Well, Lara Croft. And last week's episode. Yeah, I also remember her being, of course, in stuff like um, Doomsday, right? Where she... Yeah, go the much anticipated, but really disappointing Neil Marshall. Yeah, and, and she's kind of like, she's in her 40s now, and she's doing all right for herself, man. She plays kind of like this uh, this horrible, like, violent bitch in it, and I, I was down with that so shit. does but it work or not? You no, said it wasn't a good movie. No, man. Why doesn't it, it work? It, doesn't, it does not work. Uh, because a lot of the, the humour feels at more of a level with, like, really late workaholics, where they, I feel like, ran out of ideas a little right. bit, and less like the earlier stuff, where they were just riffing off each other and having a really good time. 
Um, there are laughs in here. It's not unenjoyable. It's not without its moments. But I would say it should be some way down the list of priorities for people who want to watch things on Netflix that are available at the moment. I mean, behind things that we've talked about even recently, like Annihilation. Annihilation, Annihilation yeah. Uh, Absolutely. But I mean, if you want, you know, like a brainless Saturday night movie when you're drinking some beers with your mates or whatever, then by all means, Game Over Man will be, you know, good enough. Uh, Just not as good as I hoped it, it would be. Anything else from anyone else? No, I haven't watched anything this week. No? No. Jack's miserable, selfishly over there yeah, recuperating from his acid on the heart illness, <laughs> not taking time to watch any movies. Well, in that case, we will be back in in just a moment with the next section of our virtual trip through the cinema that we like to call coming attractions. And yes, we have returned with coming attractions. Jack, you missed out on popcorn. You've got a coming attraction. I have got a coming attraction. Look at you with your coming attraction. Yeah, so coming attraction. Oh, little Jackie boy in the corner there. With yes, I know. Is this the one that you said? <laughs> yeah. Is this the one uh, off air, Jack, we said, is it all right, lads, if I do uh, a thing that hasn't even got a UK release date? No. Oh, okay. Okay, carry on. pick something else, and I said, no, I've got that one. Yeah, so uh, this time, is my so. uh, third choice. Lucky, I suppose. Lucky third choice. <laughs> Um, so this is going to be a Netflix release, um, and it's called Kodachrome. It's going to be released on the 20th of April, so not that long away. Uh, it's about a father and son that reunite um, so that they can travel to the last place that develops this photographic film called Kodachrome. Uh, it stars Jason Sudeikis uh, as oh, a son, no. um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ed Harris as the father who's an ageing, he's quite ill, he's uh, this amazing photographer that's got these three cameras with this filming, um, and he wants to see that. Uh, Elizabeth Olsen is in this as well, she's the father's nurse. Um, yeah, so yeah, so that should be a good watch on the 20th of Hopefully. April. It's a Netflix exclusive though. Yeah, that's, I suppose yeah, it is. The thing. Yeah, the trailer does look pretty good, I that's what I was interested Sorry, about. you may have just said this, Who, who's the director of this thing? Oh, I haven't. Oh, I forgot about the director. Oh, okay, no, 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 no worries. I was just interested to know if I had any kind of grounding in, in, in what like, yeah. who was involved yeah. or whatever. Uh, no, well, the, the cast sounds interesting. Jason Stakis tries to. It seems to be trying to broaden his. He is, isn't he? Yeah, definitely. What's the name? Coda. Codachrome. Yes. So this was actually based on a um... Elizabeth Olsen's in it. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, I, I switched off for a second. So it's yes. based on a New York uh, Times piece, an article about the last place that Kodachrome could get um, developed, which I think is quite cool. It's quite a cool thing to base it on. Dennis Haysbert's in it as well, President Palmer. Yes, yeah, he is, yeah. yeah. Um, that's quite exciting for me. Mark Rasso is the director. Let's okay. have a little look into who this is. So Mark Rasso, what does he uh, direct? He's a graduate. Uh, Mark Rasso movie. seems to have a lot of production credits. Mark okay. is the director. Wow, that's pretty this cool. This is a behind the scenes. Behind uh, the scenes. Oh, who cares? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Copenhagen. That rings a bell, but I haven't seen it for sure. Mainly short. Cop- Copenhagen. Is that the one? Uh... Well, yeah. Copenhagen is yeah, no, a movie. I know the the box art of it, but no, I haven't. I haven't seen no, it. So I can't say anything about Mark Rasso. So, yeah. To be fair, okay, but yeah, cool. no, I'm interested, man, because I think it's the kind of thing like we've talked about recently where. Because of the the dual releases of both big screen films and sort of like next uh, Netflix exclusives, or sometimes where that line is a bit more blurred, the bigger releases on Netflix either 
get massively pushed by the platform onto the front page of every single user, or maybe in the case of this movie, could get a little bit buried if people don't draw attention yeah. to them. So, yeah, I think it'd be interesting to see how it's that goes. Sort, it's quite a niche film, and I think that probably will put it back into Netflix rather than sort of well, and, shown. And, you know, Paul, you know for sure that I am one of those who is desperately hoping that Elizabeth Olsen can recapture the uh, the glory of her first outing on in a feature film. Which film's that? You, you barely so, talk about like it. It's Martha, Marcin, and Marlene. Like. Yeah, I'm not sure. I didn't even know you'd seen that until just now. So, what have you yeah. got for this week's coming attractions? What have I got for this week's coming attractions? I have got uh, a trailer that I think dropped not too long ago today, no. in fairness. Yes. Um, this <laughs> is the another project from Eli Roth, um, working with Amberlin Entertainment, believe it or not. Uh, this is the house with the clock in the walls with Jack Black and Kate Blanchett. Um, this intrigues me, to be honest. Like, I I am quite a fan of Eli Roth. I think he brings the fun back into sort of OTT gory horror. Um, he's not the most technically gifted of directors by any stretch. Um, but for him to be working with Amblin Entertainment on something does very much intrigue me. It seems like it might be more in the vein of um, like the haunted, it was the haunted house, wasn't it? Yes, or, yeah. Or that kind of, um, or like a, a kind of like fifties. Well, the trailer does look pretty creepy. I it does look quite creepy, but I, th- I don't think it's uh, it's not kind of Elo off over the top, really gory stuff. I'd but say then, it's probably aimed at because of Jack Black, it almost seemed like slightly goosebumps sort of thing. It will be slightly goosebumps. That's the thing. Amblin Entertainment is Spielberg's production company behind E.T. Behind uh, there was an Amblin thing running in front of Super Eight. Okay, yeah. so I think this is this is good. What the reason this interests me is because it seems to be Eli Roth going for a much broader appeal than he would normally go for. It seems quite creepy. It looks a bit kind of like the Frighteners, like Peter Jackson's yeah, Frighteners yeah. or something like that. So it should be interesting to see Eli Roth ta- tackle a slightly different type of horror film he can do scares he can do atmosphere reasonably well i think personally um so yeah to have him under the ambulin umbrella is interesting it's nice to see him challenge himself a bit so that's out in september i think what's the last mm-hmm. is the last eli roth uh that green not green zone that's no the knock thing. knock i think and then the green inferno before green inferno is what i'm thinking of I think yeah. knock knock was after that though which right, i quite right, enjoyed right. the county rooms is dreadful in it <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's still it's still stream worthy though. I would say that it's fun. Yeah, ahead of Game Over, man. Anyway, that I've just talked about yeah. on this show. Um, my coming attraction for this week, I've tried to keep it with something. Uh, well, as as I think you guys have too, but something that's coming out soon, which is thirtieth of, of March, actually. So right around the corner. This is Blockers, or if you look at the poster, um, g- ingeniously, uh, there's a picture of a cock before the word Blockers. So a cock roll. Make, make of that what you will. Oh, okay. Rather than just nice. a straight up like, drawing of a cock. <laughs> yes. I, yeah. I guess that's the other level of, of subtlety that yeah. I've, I've passed over there. Yeah, the reason why this is a coming attraction for me is I don't I didn't have high hopes, but it turns out that at the moment it has a Metacritic score of seventy five. It's higher than Pacific Uprising. Yeah, I hear uh, I hear I've read some uh, reviews that have said that Leslie Mann is sort of better than she's ever been in this movie. Uh, John Cena's involved as well. We've got basically. Uh, the plot, as as much as I know of it, is that a uh, group of parents, I think a trio of parents, are trying to stop their daughters from having sex on prom night, and that is where we get the cockerel blockers title. Yeah, sure. From yeah, I've seen this trailer. Right. Uh, yeah. So, like I say, I, I've seen the trailer. Didn't really think much of it, and then um, having seen some reasonably good reviews from reputable outlets, we may well be reviewing this one as a feature on next week's show. So watch this space. But until then, yeah. Oh, and I wanted to mention as well the director of this is Kay Cannon. Kay Cannon is known for. Um, 
uh, recent output, like I think she directed Pitch Perfect 2 and she was one of the producers and writers on Pitch Perfect, the, the okay. first movie. Okay, but cool. she's also the first wife of one Jason Sudeikis. So, um, you know, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, nice my, my favourite actor who's now moved on to, to that troll, uh, <laughs> Olivia, Olivia Wilde. So, yeah, yeah uh, it'd be interesting to see um, how this one goes. And especially if we do it as a feature next week, uh, you'll get sort of full thoughts at that point. Yeah. But for now, guys, unless we've got anything else to add, I think we should... Well, I was going to say, with the Cockblockers film, a lot of people have said that it's, it's a female version of Superbad or something like that. Right. That sort of film. Okay. Oh, okay. So we've got, like, I think, uh, and I may be mistaken, but I think we've got, like, the younger cast then are relatively unknown. Yes. And maybe they're going to make names for themselves off right. the back of the movie. So, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Um, but until we get to, to next week's show and that feature review, let's get out of here for now and we will be right back with uh, the meat of our show, which is the feature reviews. So yes, two feature reviews this week. Uh, the one advertised Ready Player One, that's coming up shortly after this one. Uh, the first feature we've got this week is Ava DuVernay's uh, A Wrinkle in Time. Oh, you've switched this up on me, man. Okay. Pete, do you want to set this up for us? Sorry, I have switched this up. That's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, so this one um, was actually on my list of most anticipated films of the year when we did that episode not, not too long ago. Um, the reason for that, as I think I explained at the time, is because Ava DuVernay um, from, you know, Selma and, and the 13th and the stuff like that is a filmmaker who I'd taken a yeah, substantial interest in, I guess. And then to hear that Ava DuVernay was doing this kind of Disney funded uh, space travel um, sort of fantastical adventure across the galaxy seemed to me at the very least interesting and at the very best, you know, probably one of the most tantalizing prospects of the year. Uh, what we have here is the story of a father who disappears. The father here, played by Chris Pine. Um, his wife, played by the actress that I'm increasingly just raving about all over the place, uh, Gugu and Batha Raw, is left at home with her two children, one of it, which is their, their natural um, child, and the other is an adopted child, a uh, boy, an adopted boy. And it turns to the daughter to try to find a way to be reunited with her father the thing that's going to get in the way of that mission is the fact that her father has passed through a wrinkle in time by means of his knowledge of astrophysics it would seem um, and is somewhere out there in the great beyond let's hear a clip if we are not just in the universe but the universe is within all of us think about quantum entanglement Two electrons, once bonded together, love, if you will, suddenly separated by a galaxy, but somehow still just as connected. An unbroken union despite being galaxies apart. And our most recent calculations show us that these fields connect us to other dimensions. Dimensions outside of the limitations of space and time. Imagine that, imagine. Rather than enduring the oppressive rules of time and space, we could wrinkle it. So, yeah, that clip kind of sets up the, the premise for what is uh, a pretty bonkers film, in fairness, Pete, I would say. Um, and, yeah, like my attitude towards sort of out, out there sci-fi and kind of time-traveling films and what this kind of does is a very positive one. So much like you, Pete, I was very excited um, going into this. And, again, with the, the whole Ava DuVernay thing, because actually it's incredible. This is, again, another... Indie, well, it's fair to say fairly indie, indie filmmaker 
getting a crack at a, a, at a big studio picture. So yeah, I was quite excited as well. Um, what did you think, Pete? Let's start us off. Well, um, let's kick off first with uh, what I think are the most positive aspects of the movie. So we have in the, I guess, de facto lead role, uh, Storm Reed, the actress Storm Reed, who plays this girl, Meg. Uh, I think she's supposed to be about 14 or something like that in the movie, uh, sort of a younger teenager. And she becomes the character that we're rooting for as she sort of disappears across the galaxy through this stitch in time or wrinkle in time to try and find her father, as I said, played by, by Chris Pine. Then we get into um, what is the uh, the trio that propels her on her the journey. Misses, I think they're called, they're all called yeah. the misses, yeah. So we should say this is adapted from uh, an original novel from the mid-1960s, I think 1964, um, and that novel, as I understand it, had a very sort of Christian allegorical aspect to it, which it here has been entirely, almost entirely, uh, washed away in favour of a sort of like um, self-actualisation, um, almost like self-help guide narrative for the younger generation. But I digress. The trio that she encounters are played by Oprah Winfrey, which you may know already, uh, into a giant... <laughs> I might have heard of her, I don't know. If, if, no, but I mean in terms of her involvement in the film, you yes. smart ass. Uh, in, in sort of giant ethereal form. And we've also got Reese Witherspoon uh, here, who is playing Mrs. What's It, and Mindy Calling, that people know from The American Office, uh, which is weird, because I kept thinking about that series when I was seeing her play here, Mrs. Who. Um, those three basically guide our character and encourage her. Yeah, they are. That's, that's pretty accurate. Like guide her and encourage her to like believe in herself, follow her her heart, and um, not lose faith as she goes on this treacherous journey uh, across space and time. Now, this all this all like all this setup that I'm talking about here did grab me for, from the outset, and not least because. The mother that she's the character's departing from is, is Gugu and Bathoraw, who I think is fantastic here and fantastic in, in most most things that she's in. However, Paul, let's jump into um first of all, the sight of these three these three. I mean all that, that's all. You go through who I've just mentioned and tell me what your takes were on, on Mindy Calling, Reese Witherspoon and Oprah Winfrey here. Um I- yeah, I think that they're trying to go for a, a stylized look. But let's go through the look of all three. I like what you've done with this. Um, Reese Witherspoon, I thought, looked good enough, I think. Like, she's like wrapped in a load of white bed sheets. Yeah, she's, she's supposed to look kind of white, pure, white bed I guess. She does. I think, I think of all the characters, I think that she works the best. Mindy Calling, is it? Is this... Mindy Calling is, is Mrs. Who, yeah, the one who they find in that sort of old Mindy Calling just, and... yeah, again, it look, like, looks a little bit kooky, but I didn't dislike her look. Personally, as these kind of sort of ethereal characters, ethereal characters. Um, Oprah, though, <laughs> I actually wish I'd said this to you at the time, but I'm going to drop this on you now. She looks a bit like Divine from yeah. the John Waters films. Yeah, that's like, fair. just ridiculous, just absolutely ridiculous. And in fairness, with the other ones, they're supposed to be these sort of ethereal, like ancient warrior creatures. And although the the, the, the outfit design is, is laudable and it does give them, it does give the film like a stylistic look. It looks a bit silly. Like, yeah, I mean, this is really turned up to 11 from the outset well not even from the outset from like maybe 20 minutes in or something like that in terms of like this layer of, of sort of shiny fruit pastel uh, uh starbursty quality of like colors and production design and music 
and uh, just a lot layered on a lot layered on a lot which from quite early in the film can feel a bit overwhelming well, and not point. necessarily in a there's, good way. There's one point and the, the, both these bits are in the trailer. There's one point where there's a giant Oprah walking around and Reese Witherspoon has turned into like a, a leaf dragon I think is the she, best she way looks, to describe it. Dude, she looks like... And I'm just she's like, got, what is going on She's here, got like, like the, let's be clear, she's got like the head of an artichoke <laughs> on the body of like a big lettuce leaf yeah. that had sex with like okay. a slug. Wow, yeah. which is fine, <laughs> and I'm all I'm all for this. And at that point, I was like, I want to be more involved in this. But if you're gonna throw us into these fantastical worlds, please give us some fucking context. That for me was one of the film's biggest problems. It's just suddenly you're there, you're there at school. She's having a hard time at school, and then boom, you've got flying leaves and a giant Oprahs, and I just. Context, please. There was yeah. like none of it. As as Paul starts effing and jeffing over this uh, <laughs> yeah. episode, I should point out that this is a Disney production, <laughs> pre- predominantly targeted at the children. Um, will the children like this film, Paul? I know that's a difficult question to ask, considering that we are just out of childhood ourselves. Only just, yeah. But like, because that's the, that's the thought that kept coming back to mind for me, man, when I was watching this movie. Is like. This isn't working for me. This is overdone. Like, the musical choices seem too on the nose. The self-actualization stuff seems too didactic. But is this going to work for kids and young teenagers? I don't think so, no. Because you've got that whole bit in the middle. And I just, I just want to just throw in that I, I wanted to like this film. Much like Pete, I was very excited for it. I thought, yes, this is going to be a bit out there. I'm game for some crazy CGI. I'm game for some crazy alien worlds, you know, and I... I'm game for this because I love sci-fi, hence my love of Pacific Rim and I you know, this goes on and on. Um, so I was really, really wanted this to be good. And at every point I was like, this will pick up in a minute. Please pick up. Please pick up. I want this to be good. I want to come out of it going, yeah, I really like that. And I just couldn't. There's a really, really leaded middle section where they go underground and meet Zach, Zach Galifianakis, who's called Happy Medium, I believe. Yes. And you're like, really, guys? Again, just so on the nose. And he is just like Professor Exposition. He just spouts exposition, but... By the point in the movie that he turns up, you, you, the moment's already lost to provide context. It just is boring. You need to provide context early doors, and it doesn't do it. And, and even teenagers need context. Right. right, and it's tough though, man, because like Zach Galifianakis is someone for us that as soon as you see him, you're like, this guy's like a goof. This guy's going to do some goofy business in a minute, and it's going to be funny. Obviously, that's probably going to fly over the heads of, like, younger, younger viewers. Like, if you're a teenager, you know who he is. But if you're younger, you're not going to be familiar with that guy. But you're right. Like, what ends up happening is he just sort of explains the story in a a, a poorly lit kind of cave where they're standing on what looks like fairly shonky CGI blocks. This movie cost $103 million. And that money's gone somewhere. And I guess it's gone to some of the rendering of giant Oprah Winfrey. Because there are parts of the movie where, like, it doesn't look like a $103 million movie. But parts of it do, and parts of it look incredible, which is why it's a shame. There's just so much lost potential. Can, can I talk about a part that doesn't look incredible? What about Michael Peña's role in this movie, Paul? Yeah, that was... Michael Peña shows up in the movie without spoiling anything in basically like uh, an ensemble outfit that looks like a sort of shirt and pants, uh, or shirt and shorts, I should say, that um, are kind of covered in like a... Yeah, again, like fruit pastel beach scene print. It's interesting, uh, to, to, at the very best, it's interesting. Yeah, the, yeah, the, it, it's interesting at times, visually it's interesting at times. It's just the script, though, is the problem. And I think it's, it's, it's all well and good to blame Ava DuVernay here, because a lot of people do blame the director, and rightly or wrongly, the director is normally given credit for the final product. Yeah. But ultimately, I mean, when I did, years ago, when I did film studies at university, there was some argument as should, should the 
authorship of the film be joint? Should they be joint credited between the screenwriters and the director? Absolutely. I, I would argue there's there's some there's definitely validation in that. But for me, the problem here isn't with the direction because the direction isn't too bad. Some of the effects works are not not best. They're not the best, as you said. But you can let that slide if the story's strong enough. The script is just the script is the problem here, Pete. What would, would you agree? Disagree? Yeah, I'm just looking up the the screenwriters. So. There are two credited screenwriters for this movie. One of them is Jennifer Lee. Jennifer Lee's top credits seem to be uh, Frozen, which obviously giant box office success. Wreck-It Ralph, which I think, Jack, you, we've talked about recently. Yes, we? we have. And yeah. you liked it more than me, but like definitely yeah. had the good things about it. Zootropolis, which I think was very oh, well I enjoyed it, yeah, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, interesting. And then I'm just going to look up Jeff Stockwell is the male screenwriter who was involved. Um, and see what his credits are. But yeah, like I basically agree. I think that I've even read um, someone that we probably overcredit on this show because he crops up at the top of Letterboxd all the time. But David Ehrlich's review of this film, he he kind of said that um, Ava DuVernay managed to bring like her vision to screen, even though not all of it works. And like, yeah, to some extent. But Paul, you're right. Like, the director is only doing so much. I mean, the story here as it's been sketched is sketched by screenwriters and by the source material. So it, I think it's a valid point. Um yeah, the other screenwriter, Bridge to Terabithia, um, Children of the Machine, The Ottoman Lieutenant, I don't know, uh, and A Wrinkle in Time. So, yeah. There's a problem. <laughs> some, some pedigree on, on both sides, I suppose, but, ah, uh, yeah. I, it's just it, a massive missed opportunity, as I said. I, we, we both kind of licked each other when we finished, and we were like, almost like just sort of sullen and withdrawn. We're like, oh, I'm so sad that wasn't very good. Like, I just we, we should I mention as well, because we, we jumped over this with the characters, Mindy Calling's character in this, and I don't know because I haven't read the source material, like, she's just this sort of cipher who, who quotes things from history. That's supposed to be her characterization is that her, she, until she fades when they're in the dark place, she just delivers quotes from history. So it is a bit like having a character who is, you know, one of those friends that you have on Facebook I don't, but you guys might, who uh, basically <laughs> just copy-pastes like brainyquote.com onto their newsfeed to make themselves sound smart. Like, it does feel a bit like that in character form, except for when she drops, like, an outcast quote or, like, a someone from black culture quote where you feel like, oh, maybe Ava DuVernay has got yeah. some some say in, in some of this rewriting of the, the original script. But, yeah, Paul, I think you summed it up well. I think it's a big missed opportunity. I think it... It could have been something really, really bracingly really good. I wanted it to be something bracingly good as well. Like even right until the last twenty minutes, it was like, oh, maybe they'll have an incredible last twenty minutes, and it just, just doesn't come. No, and can we, you know, not to harpen it too much, but like, can we just agree that if you've cast Gugu and Batha Raw, you give her more to do than about what five to ten minutes of screen time? I mean, it's a, it's a as real, say, real travesty. I'm on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, shame that we're seemingly so negative on this one. Check it out for yourself. Obviously, if kids are enjoying it, that is the target audience here. And I'd be really interested to know anyone who has kids or, you know, younger uh, listeners as well, where this is landing with people. Because for us, I think, it, yeah, just dis- disappointing in a number of different ways. I yeah, think. massively disappointing, to be honest, which is a shame. But we'll be back after this with our review of Ready Player One.
So, we are back once again for our second feature review of the week. With the Renegade Master. With the Renegade Master, D4 Damager, Power to the People, or whatever. Uh, Yeah, we are back with a review. Yeah, because that's quite fitting, actually, just doing like a callback to something from the past for no discernible reason, because we are going into a review of Ready Player One. Now, we mentioned and discussed Steven Spielberg at the start of the show with this in mind, because this is the new one from the crazy mind of Steven Spielberg. And it is uh, it's quite something. It's quite a spectacle. I want to set up just a little bit and then we'll get to a clip. So the plot, and Paul can probably clarify this one a little bit uh, better than I can, but the plot of this movie is based around a virtual reality uh, sort of MMO that exists in the future, a massive multiplayer on like Jack Mills has just got tremendously excited about Jamie Vardy so I might have to uh... confession time the football <laughs> the, two fucks the, yeah. the football is on in the background the so England game is on in the background so, yeah. but back to Ready Player One Jack Mills uh, yeah there's a there's this kind of giant virtual reality MMO uh, that exists in the not too distant future the world has fallen to um, uh, being pretty much a sort of a wasteland due to things like uh, or as I mentioned the film things like the the bandwidth wars uh, and obviously the fact that the number of people in the world compared with the number of people uh, excuse me compared with the resources that are available to those people just doesn't match up so competition for resources for bandwidth for space is at an absolute um, premium is an absolute high point and within all of this we get a character who is played by uh, Ty Sheridan and he wants to live as much as he can, like a lot of people, in a place, a virtual place called the Oasis. The Oasis is a bit like, you know, like Second Life, that like game that got really popular for yeah, a little while, but much, much <laughs> more advanced yeah. than involved. So even to the point where characters in this film are wearing sort of full body feedback suits that allow them to physically experience the world in which they're, they're sort of, into which their brain has been transported. Um, yes, we can talk further about all the machinations of this world right after we hear a little clip. Three keys. Three hidden challenges test the worthy traits. Revealing three hidden keys to three magic gates. And those with the skill to survive these straits will reach the end. Where the prize awaits. So yeah, that sets up kind of the, the premise of the film. And Pete, did you mention the, the kind of how the competition or what competition's for? Oh, right. Uh, but yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll delve Do into it. it. I'll delve into it. That's the fine. Easter egg. So basically you have uh, Mark Rylance here plays um, Halliday, who's the inventor of the Oasis, which is this MMO game that you were talking about. Uh, and basically he uh, dies and leaves a message to the rest of the world that says basically, I have set you a series of challenges. If you find the keys, if you find three keys unlock the chest, basically complete the game, then you win my fortune and control of the Oasis video game. So the the film kind of starts off on this quest and there's a race, there's a race to basically control Halliday's fortune, who is basically kind of the the, the video game version of Steve Jobs, Jobs essentially, I think kind of sums them up and is kind of what it's based on. Um, yeah, and the whole thing, and Halliday is obsessed with, in the book he's obsessed with 80s pop culture, 
in the film, he's I think they, they kind of branch out a little bit because Microsoft have paid loads of money to get Halo in here. Uh, Halo is in this film, I'm not. <laughs> um, so within the VR, basically, you can have whatever avatar you like within the VR game within the Oasis. Um, so basically what this is and what the book does is there's just so many references to so much pop culture just mashed into the film, mashed all, all together in one. Um, Pete, do you want to start? Yeah, so Halliday, Halliday that you mentioned, the, the, the guy who's sort of embedded this Easter egg within his big virtual world is played here by Mark Rylance that is, you know, the the sort of um, actor's actor, I guess, yeah. in, a, in a lot of uh, context that he appears. Then uh, we've also got his previous uh, partner, uh, Ogden Morrow, played by Simon Pegg. Uh, rapidly aging to a rather distressing level by the end of this, oh, wow, yeah. this movie. Uh, then, yeah, who else is involved? So I've mentioned Ty Sheridan. Olivia Cook uh, plays Artemis, who is sort of the, the love interest of the Ty Sheridan character, I would say. Uh, ben Mendelsohn is like the big bad in this movie, yes, isn't he? Ben is, Mendelsohn. Yeah, ben, ben Mendelsohn. Ben Mendelsohn, man, like, is one of those actors that you could basically insert in any movie well, and, Mark, and make it a bit better. A friend of the show, Mark Brennan, did message me about... Um, about Ready Player One, and I didn't notice this. He said, yeah. Did you notice Ben Mendelsohn's new teeth? Because I couldn't. He said I couldn't look at anything else. Oh. So apparently, Ben Mendelsohn is finally that Hollywood thing that everyone gets their teeth done. Apparently, Mendelsohn's finally back would have got new teeth. But anyway, just in the Oasis or uh, in IRL? Um, I don't know. Right, because I wonder <laughs> IRL is it AFK yeah. or is it like? Like literally real Go life. Go back to it. No one knows what you're talking about now. Not even me. Yeah, they do. The people on the internet do. They all know these <laughs> kinds of uh, acronyms. Uh, yeah, uh, TJ Miller's in this thing too. Does he play like a robot or something? I rock. I can't even remember what that character is. But I just remember TJ Miller. What did you think of the voice. film? Let's um, get into that. I, I, I'm kind of procrastinating on giving my opinion on the film, Paul, because I don't want you to cry tears of horrible nostalgic uh, pain. Because Should I, I start then, and you. I I didn't like this movie, and I will tell you very briefly why, and then we'll start batting this thing back back and forth. I didn't really like this movie because I felt that, um, as I hinted at at the beginning, rather unfairly in my introduction, I think that um, I am all for remembering the past. The problem I had with a lot of the references here is it just felt like you know the member berries in South Park. This yes. little, yeah, where they go, member, 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 and then we just see stuff that's from the past. Like, I don't understand how um, how pertinent it is to include, oh, look, do you remember Jurassic Park? Because here's part of it. Oh, do you remember, for example, the egregiously long sequence from The Shining that is co-opted here into the film, folded that's into so the film? Fact, for, for just so that people who like The Shining go, like, oh, God, I love this film because that's The Shining. No, you love The Shining. You love The Shining, you love Jurassic Park, but do you love this movie? What I felt coming coming sort of towards the end of the movie and coming out of the movie was like a sense that the, the thing itself was rather um, hollow and, and that really, apart from the thrill of seeing things I like on screen, I, I didn't really bond with the characters and I felt like it didn't do a great job of investigating the potential perils and realities of a future affected increasingly by technology maybe that's too high-minded of a, of a standard to hold it to but uh given what i'd heard about this going in i felt a bit underwhelmed coming out paul tell me why i'm wrong i fucking <laughs> love this film yeah no uh, i get that but tell me why yeah. and i'll tell you why i love the film there is there is sometimes within me, there is there is an inner turmoil with me between the guy that reviews films and can look at the film's weaknesses and the fact that some films I just enjoy and yeah. are just a sheer joy 
for me to watch. Pacific Uprising is going to be one of his films, without a shadow of a doubt. Pacific Rim, probably another one of his films. Um, so for me, I, I read the book, I enjoyed the book a lot. It's not the best written book in the world, as a number of people have started to point out. And no, it, wasn't, it was never meant to be that. But for me, I love my pop culture. As you said, to, I think last week, a fully signed up member of the Geek Brigade, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I loved seeing all these references thrown together on the screen. And for me, and I, I love that. I understand why it might seem pointless. It probably is pointless. But by that notion, then everything's pointless. No, no, I'm not taking that leap. No, By that I'm notion, that everything is pointless. No, like, no, if things, but if things, if things are put on the screen to entertain people, then surely the point is to entertain. Sure, sure, but do you not like? Uh, no, I, I completely understand where you're coming from, but like. Did you not hold it to a higher standard? Like, do you not see a world in which Ready Player One... Okay, there's a source material and it's going to be in line with that. But, like, a film like this could do something a little bit more interesting with some of those references. That's all, I guess. Yes. It, there are points... Because it's like, oh, there's Buckaroo Banzai. There are, there it's are... literally just there. Yeah, but Buckaroo Banzai's in it. No, exactly, though. So, I like that movie. It's great. Yeah. But what's it no, hold doing on, hold, on, hold on, hold on. So, yes... There are points, and there are you would probably you you would certainly enjoy the book more. The book makes more of the quest, and the puzzles that they have to solve to get the keys are certainly better thought out in the book than they are in the film. That is the film's weakness. Is like there's a bit in the beginning where apparently it's taken five years for someone to realize they have to drive backwards to solve the race. Not going to have happened. Like it wouldn't have happened. The puzzles in the book are better, without a shadow of a doubt. But for me. It was just, from start to finish, it was action, 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 and just relentlessly entertaining. And I man, I'd switched my brain off, and I enjoyed it right up until the end. The bits I wanted from the book were in there, so that was great. I like Ben Mendelsohn. I like the cast. I am a shameless geek. I like watching, I do like watching pop culture references mashed together, whether that makes me better or worse. I don't really care, because I had a lot of fun with this film. And for me, no. Yes, there is a deeper film to be made, possibly out of the source material. There is probably a more interesting film out there to be made about virtual reality and the future. This isn't it. But for me, this was just like just a straight like two-hour blast of fun, and I loved it. Yeah, no, I, I'm not going to step on that enjoyment whatsoever. <laughs> like, I'm not here to convert you to, no, to my no, dark side. I mean, I suppose also it's just interesting to talk about, like, things in this world, right? Because you, you've read the source material, as we've pointed out on the show previously, and I, and I haven't, but... Like, things in this world, for example, like the fact that there's this race that everybody's involved in, right, where they're doing the first section of trying to get the first key, because there were the three keys, is that right? Yeah. yeah, they're trying to get three keys. The first section is this sort of road race thing, virtual reality road race. And the uh, thing, that I, without spoiling anything, the thing that the lead Ty Sheridan character decides to do, to me, seems like in a massive multiplayer, like online sort of virtual world, like the thing that thousands of people... Exactly what I said, yeah. I did say so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like, you no, may 100% agree with you. That and that, that, is, that is, for me, the film's weakness. Is in, in the book, I, said, I would say read the book. I think you will prefer it. It's not, again, it's not well I written. It's still trashy pop fiction. You should, <laughs> you should. Um, But yeah, so the, the, the puzzles that they have to go through to get the keys are more complicated and, and do make a bit more sense. The Shining reference you talk about, I thought was just a shitload of fun. Yeah. And again, for me, the film was just fun. In the same way that Pacific Uprising delivered, I went into the cinema, I came up two hours later and I was like, that was wicked. Well, you... And if I could do that clicky finger thing, I'd do that <laughs> yeah, you would. Thing, which well, is what I'm trying to do yeah. on the mic. But, you yeah. made, yeah, talking off mic, like Paul, Paul made, a, uh, I think, a very solid point, which was that 
the way in which I reviewed uh, The Greatest Showman earlier this year yes. is very probably similar to the reaction that, that you've had with this movie. Totally. Well, like, well, I, could, like, I could just throw back at you, like, well, if you don't if you don't embrace the joy of what's on the screen, then you may as well not even like films at all, or words to that effect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So I, I get that. I think that, yeah, it's, it's going to hit people in, in sort of different ways, and it's going to depend to a certain degree how much you're willing to enjo- indulge the sort of... Um, the delivery method here, which is sort of big on spectacle and maybe um, smaller on on sort of any kind of subtext or intrigue. I'm being so biased here. Yeah. Jack, have you saw this movie? As I well? did see. It. Oh, yeah, I saw this where, at the uh, unlimited come... screening. Oh, we were the same did. one. Where do you yes. come down on on? Yeah, we were sat next to each other. Yes, right? we were. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, where, yeah. where do you come down on this movie? Did, did this work for you? So, for me, I thought there was almost an overload of popular culture. And not enough of the sort of other things that were going in on in the background. I absolutely loved it because of how it looked and how the actors were performing. Um, but my other half made a good point is that actually you didn't necessarily have to know about all of the, the links with the popular culture to enjoy it. Mm. I thought it was fun. I thought it was a very good film well, that's, on the screen. Cool. That's probably like a fairly good counter. But I didn't like it in 3D. The pacing of it. Because you know, Spielberg can throw to Spielberg paces films well, well as we were discussing. Well, I just wanted to touch on that point yeah, first sorry. of all, which, which is that maybe that, that raises a good counterpoint to what I was saying, which is that if what I want from this is for the, the sort of cameos and references to be a bit more involved or a bit more deep or a bit more uh, nuanced, maybe if that were the case, that would alienate a certain amount of the audience. And obviously this is a Steven Spielberg, giant budget, uh, wide release uh, piece of popular culture in its own right. And so it needed to not overly rely on the existing knowledge of its audience, right? This isn't some niche thing that just cropped up in a corner of the internet. This is like a big marquee movie so yeah I, I totally get that as well and yeah from from the question that you asked Paul like yeah I, I guess I think it has got pace about it and I think that compared with like some some a uh, wrinkle in time for example a wrinkle in time yeah I mean a wrinkle in time's pacing's okay I just think it felt a bit uh, blamongy and a bit a bit empty but like uh, compared to like some superhero movies that seem to go on for about four weeks, like this did zip along at a pace. Yeah. I think that I guess then my my counter though to that positivity is that I just never felt particularly invested in Ty Sheridan at his character at all. Um, as much as I think he's a perfectly capable actor, I think I think whether this is right or wrong, I think having read the book helps. Yeah. Um, yeah, whether it should help or not is a, is a whole nother... You can do a whole podcast on whether it should help or not. So mm. I'd like um, to read the book and then watch the film again and yeah. sort of they compare those. They actually. do change a lot. It keeps the spirit of the book, but they do change a lot. But obviously but. that does happen a lot when someone does make a film from a book, I think, in majority of the well, time. They have to change it. Yeah, yeah but, but also don't you find that oftentimes like, it's a sort of futile battle when you're someone who's read the source material because... The reason that you're extra excited to see the movie is because you've read the source material and then you'll go around telling everyone, yeah. oh, you've got to read the book, you've got to read the book. Most of those people aren't going to read the book. You might as well give up on that fight because the thing is, if you've got, and I'm, I suppose I'm directing this at you, Paul, but also on like to many people who, who would listen to the show too, like if you've got enjoyment from the source material and you go into the movie and get enjoyment from the movie, who am I? Like, I'm not trying to get in the way of that or say that that's invalid whatsoever. Like, I totally see how this could be a really enjoyable blast for like tons of people. It just didn't work for me that well, yeah, and, and that's yeah, you know yeah, that's why yeah, that's yeah. why we have more than one voice on the show, really, yeah. isn't it? To, to balance out, and it's, it's interesting too because um, of all the films, of all the big releases I've seen of late, this I think has proven to be one of the most divisive I've seen because I've read uh, 
but some good reviews and we've had some terrible reviews as people either basically sitting up sitting either camp really. Um, so yeah, it's it's always quite interesting when a film does prove so divisive. Um, but that pretty much brings us to the end of the feature reviews and bang on to our credit section. Um, to lead in directly from that, I want to yep. pay credit to um, the end credit sequence from the film Buckaroo Banzai, in fact. Right. It's always in my mind. Uh, the theme tune is my ringtone. Um, and it is directly... Uh, actually, yes, this is probably a reference to next week's episode. It is also homaged in Wes Anderson's Life Aquatic. If you haven't seen... Aww. If you've seen nothing <laughs> other than the end credits of Buckaroo Banzai, just watch that. Um, it's incredible. So they, they're dancing, they're, they're walking along in a row. You've got Peter Weller, Jeff Goldblum, and a number of other actors uh, appearing to walk, sort of dance walk to the theme tune to the film. Actually, turns out the theme tune to the film wasn't ready, and they're actually dance walking, which is not not a term, to uh, Uptown Girl. Nice. So yeah, that, that's my credit to Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah, there may be a majority of the listenership who've never heard of Buckaroo Banzai, and do yourself a favour and check it out because it's a lot it's of fun. <laughs> uh, my credit for this week is <laughs> rather predictably going to be another podcast because this is what I do. Uh, but it's a particular episode of a podcast, and you will understand. This is the podcast, The Modern Man, uh, which is from a guy called Ollie Mann. Ollie Mann is the co-host of uh, another popular show called Answer Me This, but he's broken off and done like his own thing. Uh, the Modern Man is spelt uh, M-A-N-N for anyone who's interested. But the episode is Season 7, Episode 4, which was released uh, 20th of March. And it is called Anatomy of a Movie Trailer. So what he does on the show is he sits down in this episode with a UK editor, now UK-based, I think, editor called uh, Gareth Davies. Gareth Davies worked on a number of big trailers, including one of my very favourite indie films of the last few years, The One I Love, and in this episode, yeah, really yeah, good. Yeah, really good uh, Elizabeth Moss and yeah. uh, and Mark Duplass. Yeah, really in in this episode, he basically goes through uh, film history in sort of big jumps through decades and looks at the ways in which movie trailers have changed form since way back and right up to the present day. It's really, really interesting. Ollie okay. Mann is a, a very engaging host. It's very accessible. It's not like sort of overly. Um, it, uh, exclusive or, or or geeky or whatever. So yeah, very, very much one that I'd recommend to anybody who's got an interest in the way that movie trailers end up being the way that they are and how much impact they have had and do have on the success or otherwise of films. So yeah, that one's called The Modern Man and uh, check that out if you have the chance. Jack, have uh, my credit goes to Steven Spielberg for featuring the Iron Giant in Ready Player One. Oh, I love the Iron Giant. Yes. Yeah. But, the, but that, I just love the Iron Giant. I don't yeah, love this movie. That made me smile a lot. <laughs> So yeah, that's my credit. There's a lot of surprises in Red yes, Bear. Absolutely. A lot of nice surprises. Uh, right, well that brings us to the end of the show. I will be back in a couple of weeks, hopefully, if Virgin uh, sort the shit out. Um that would be nice. Uh in the meantime you can find us on Twitter at Strangers Cinema, um Strangers in a Cinema on Instagram. Uh the show though, without me, will return next week. Goodbye. See ya. Bye. Shut up and sit down.